Before concluding our discussion of the attributes of God under the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible, we were in process of reviewing the various considerations that we have had upon the natural attributes of God. We were considering the attribute of knowledge as to how extensive the knowledge of God is. We know that God knows all things that are knowable, but the question arises whether God knows all his own future actions and whether he knows all the future actions of his moral creatures as to just what the Bible indicates on this important subject. Before taking leave of this subject, which has occasioned much difficulty to many, we desire to review a few of the many Bible passages that, when taken in their natural meaning, plainly indicates that God does not have absolute foreknowledge over all his own actions, nor of all of those of his creatures. The word repent and its derivatives is used to describe the actions of God some 33 times in the Old Testament. The word basically means to be sorry, to grieve, or to lament. It is used less than 10 times in relation to man, and thus in its common usage it relates to God and indicates an aroused state of grief and disappointment in the being of God because of developments that have taken place. Now certainly the word loses its meaning if it be assumed that God had perfect foreknowledge of the exact situation that has developed. Many attempt to change the significance of these revelations by saying that God is accommodating his mode of expressions to our way of thinking and does not intend them as actual representations of his own experiences. But there are no intimations whatever that they are not intended as actual revelations of the inner experiences of the Godhead. These actions relate to a spiritual being and have nothing physical in their descriptions to suggest anything that we might be considered as an adaptation to our particular way of thinking. Of these many instances, we only cite the most important revelation. For example, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, God is said to have regretted that man had been created when God viewed the universality of sin and wickedness and the profound development that men had achieved by mental concentration on selfishness and sin in defiance to his holy being. There we read these simple words, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repenteth the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. 
But then the bright spot in this whole dark picture was this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now this is what the Word of God says, and no one can charge us with error if we brush aside the philosophies of men that have encumbered recent centuries in particular and be simple enough to believe the words of Scripture in their simplest meaning. Certainly, if there was to be anything peculiar in these profound revelations, the Word of God would have told us so. If they were not to be intended to be taken literally, we should have been certainly advised of this important fact. We will cite a few of the other passages which have been presented as indications that God does not have perfect foreknowledge of all his own actions and of those of his moral creatures. In Genesis chapter 22, we read above God's purpose to try or prove the obedience of Abraham, who was the chosen instrument of building up the Jewish nation and thereby influencing the world for God. God told him to do the strangest thing, to offer his only son Isaac through Sarah on an altar. Without questioning God's wisdom, Abraham proceeded in absolute obedience. With Isaac lying bound upon the altar, Abraham lifted his knife to slay his son. Believing that God could not make a mistake and was able to raise Isaac up again from the dead if necessary, at this instant, with his knife in hand, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham telling him not to go through with the awful ordeal, with the revealing words, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me, as recorded in verse 12. The plain meaning of these words is that at that moment God became persuaded of the absolute obedience of Abraham, like he had not been before and was exceedingly pleased over his servant's faithfulness. Allow this obvious meaning, and all is thrilling and blessed. Say that God always knew the outcome, and problems of explanation arise. After the golden calf incident in the wilderness, during the forty-day stay of Moses on the mount, Moses, by his humble prayer, had persuaded God to change his mind about destroying the nation. God was contemplating some righteous judgment upon Israel, which would depend upon their attitude of repentance. In Exodus 33 and verse 5, we read this statement from the Lord. For the Lord hath said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people, I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment, and consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. They humbled themselves, and doubtless God modified his judgment accordingly. Allow the obvious fact that God was waiting their free moral actions to see 
the manifestation of their hearts, and all is simple and plain. Remove this simple interpretation, and what would the meaning of it be? In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, we are told that God led the children of Israel miraculously through the wilderness for 40 years with this express purpose, to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. Allow the obvious fact that God gained a knowledge of their free moral actions during this long wilderness period, and the verse has a vivid meaning. Think of the unmeasured grief and disappointment to God as embodied in the words spoken by God to Moses. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, as recorded in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 13. Allow God to have become acquainted with their stubborn actions by tender observations, and the words can retain their simple meaning. The same idea is continued in Judges chapter 2 and verses 20 to 23. Because of Israel's resistance to the kindness of God, God changed his mind as to driving out the remaining nations from Palestine. God planned to use these nations as a test of Israel's obedience, as we read in the 22nd verse, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. But if God knew beforehand every single act of disobedience and thought of mind, what would the meaning of these words be? In 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, God sent the prophet Isaiah to King Hezekiah of Judah with these express words, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Here is a positive statement of fact in the causation of God. Hezekiah prayed most earnestly for an extension of life, and God changed his mind and sent Isaiah back with the message, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. As we come to the New Testament, we encounter the story of Judas. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 14, we have the record of the call of Judas to the apostleship, along with the other eleven. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, we have the record of our Lord Jesus having spent the whole previous night in prayer to God, so that there could be no mistake in the choice of the twelve apostles. In the morning, we read, He called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Thus Judas was most certainly a disciple, and in a pardoned relationship to God, or common sense certainly disappears. In Mark chapter 3 and verses 14 to 15, we are specifically told by the Lord why he chose his twelve 
apostles. There need be no mistake whatever about the purposes of the Lord Jesus, since he has so clearly made them known. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. Now he most certainly would not have chosen an unrepentant sinner to be with him. John the Baptist had given the nation Israel a great overhauling with his insistent words, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. John then referred to the very common scene, the threshing floor, where the workers fanned away the chaff after they had milled out the wheat. Jesus also would have his fan in hand in a spiritual sense, said John, in chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Would he have then chosen the chaff to be with him as a constant companion? Simplicity of interpretation demands no for the answer, but we shall have to continue this in our next visit. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word and for the revelations of Thy loving heart. And now we thank Thee for Thy invitation to all men that they may repent while it is yet day. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be forgiven, be reconciled to Thee. How we pray that many may experience Thy loving forgiveness this day in Jesus' name. Amen.